James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So as I was um, working through which book I wanted to dedicate uh, several sermons to, one of the considerations was the practicality of uh, getting through an entire book. Um, you know, you can pick a book like Luke and spend multiple decades uh, in Luke, uh, like John MacArthur has. Uh, I've already preached through most of the shorter books that we have. Uh, so the letter of James is one of those books that is deceptively simple, but also complex at the same time. It's short, but there's a lot to it. Um, you kind of think it fits in there, snug right in there uh, after Hebrews, so it's probably similar in tone and complexity. Uh, but what we'll find, and we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute here, is that the book of James is actually sort of alien to the way that we often think about a New Testament letter. So we're very used to the letters of Paul, which follow a very standard kind of in, you know, indicative first, imperative second kind of structure. Paul spends time telling us all about who we are in Christ and what, what the gospel is, and then he shifts over somewhere in the back half to tell us what that means to live our life. The book of James uh, takes a very different structure, and I found as I was preparing that scholars can't really agree on what the structure is. If you pick up six different commentaries and look at six different outlines, you're going to see six completely different structures, um, which makes it an interesting challenge for us. So today we're going to work through the first 11 verses, and I've titled the uh, sermon today, The Wisdom of Trials. And uh, just a, by way of disclosure, the, the, the title has a little bit of a double entendre, because what we see is that God himself is wise in giving us very various trials, but we'll also see that God uses these trials to build wisdom in us. So as we do when we start any book, we want to take a little bit of time to orient ourselves to the book. Uh, we'll talk about the author, who it was written to, the dating, and um, we'll talk a little bit about the what I'm calling the canonical location, and I'll explain what that is. Uh, there's really only three serious uh, contenders for authorship for the book of James that the the reality of divine inspiration and what we believe to be true about that allows. Um, so we have uh, James, son of Zebedee, who's sort of the most famous of the Jameses. He fits in that inner circle of James, John, and Peter that we read so often about in the gospel. Uh, we also have the possibility of James, son of Alphaeus, who's another one of the apostles that gets very little airtime, and, and we know almost nothing about him except that he's named James. His father's name is Alphaeus, 
and that he was one of the 12 disciples. We don't know much from church history. We don't know much from the Bible. Uh, and lastly, and I think the most likely is James, who is the half brother of Jesus, uh, who was likely uh, one of the children uh, from Joseph and Mary uh, after Jesus was born. I'm not going to go into all the details, but the most likely answer is that it is, is James, uh, the brother of Jesus. Um, James, son of Alphaeus, uh, as I said, we know almost nothing about him. This author uh, simply identifies himself as James, which tells us he was famous enough for himself to expect the people reading to know which James it was. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, we, you know, we look at the different kinds of styles and things. We, we don't see the same kind of verbal affinities between this James and John that we would expect from siblings. Uh, we do see some of the verbal affinities, and I'll talk about a few of those, or the, the similarities in the way they, they write and the things they say. We see those same kinds of similarities between Jesus and James, which is likely to tell us they probably grow up using the same vocabulary. I'm sure we all have kind of family codes, you know, things that we say that people outside of our family might understand, but people inside of our family would just get like that. They wouldn't have to wonder what that means. Uh, James is also the leader of the Jerusalem church. We know that he came to faith after, uh, likely after the resurrection. He's the only one of uh, his, one of Christ's brothers that we have a specific rec record of him appearing to after the resurrection, uh, which is significant. Um, so we know that, we know that he bears the stamp of apostolic authority. Uh, and we also know that he was a, a significant leader in the Jerusalem uh, church, uh, which really extended kind of not just Jerusalem itself, but sort of exercised authority throughout the whole of Israel. Um, the other apostles, we'll, we'll find out a little bit later in the letter, and as we kind of cross-reference with Acts, they started to spread out. And so Jerusalem was left initially really with just James, and for a time with Peter uh, and some of the other apostles. Um, he was also seen as kind of the figurehead of the Jewish church. So we know ver very early on that the, the church sort of divided. Uh, it's called the great parting of ways. Sometimes the, the difference between the Jewish and the Christian or the, the Greek church. James was sort of the figurehead of that. So if we think of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter is sometimes called the apostle to the Jews. James really, we can think of the first bishop of the Jewish church. He's really the first person who was seen as the central uh, leader in that church. So if you'll turn over briefly with me, uh, just to sort of flesh a little bit of that out, turn over to Acts chapter 15. This is a very significant historical event. This is the first church council we have a record of. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people say that the Council of Nicaea is the first church council. That's a different uh, kind of a, a, a reckoning. But Acts 15, we're not going to read the whole thing, but Acts 15 is this account where the Jewish church and the Gentile church, all the representatives from these churches come together to settle the matter of whether or not obedience to the Mosaic law is necessary. And so uh, we see starting uh, sort of midway through, I'm not going to read it, but the, the idea is that the church comes, various groups kind of present their arguments. Peter uh, presents what he, you know, what happened with him in Cornelius a few chapters earlier. Paul recounts what has happened with him as he's ministered to the Gentiles. And then when the assembly is finished, after all of the things are, uh, are said, all the arguments are made, all the debate has been had, we see in verse 13, it says, after they finished speaking, they being Paul, Barnabas, and then by implication, 
everyone who spoke uh, previously. When they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And he goes on and in verse 19, he says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. So what we see here is James steps forward as kind of the presiding pastor or the presiding bishop over the Jerusalem council. And after he's heard everything, we shouldn't picture this in sort of the Roman Catholic way. James is not like the Pope of Jerusalem or anything like that, but he's the one presiding over the uh, council. You kind of think of it like when we have our business meeting, the moderator sort of determines the flow of conversation and it summarizes what's been said and then kind of proposes the vote. It's not quite the same, but we can think of it in a similar fashion. And then just to sort of help establish this a little bit further, if you go down to verse 23, this is the beginning of the actual letter. Uh, it says, with the following letter, it says, the brothers, both the apostles and elders to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Now that little word greetings there, none of the other epistles in the New Testament use that formula. So what we have here in uh, Acts is we have James sending a letter and he starts the letter the exact same way that he does in James 1, but not the same way that any of the other apostles do. So it's a lot of circumstantial evidence that we're putting together. It's a lot of little pieces and bits and clues, but this establishes James as the author better than the other two candidates that we have. Uh, his audience, we'll see, uh, is mostly Jewish Christians who are scattered uh, about as a result of the persecution following Stephen's death. Uh, in Acts um, one through, uh, 8, 1 through 3, we see this event, right? Stephen goes before the Sanhedrin. He gives his testimony. He delivers kind of a gospel message, and they stone him to death. And as a result of that, what, what we read is that the, the church disperses. Those who were in Jerusalem, who were living and worshiping regularly in Jerusalem, they scatter to the, to the edges of initially Judea and Samaria, and then they continue to scatter to the rest of the world. And what we see here is uh, in Acts, the Greek word, normally I don't want to throw a lot of Greek at you, but this one's important. The Greek word for uh, scatter, which is used in Acts, um, in Acts 8, is diaspero, right? The word used in James 1, when he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, is diaspora. So what we have is this, this verbal similarity between the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who diaspero out to the edges of the, the nation of Israel, to the territory of Israel, and then James, who is the uh, author of this letter, is writing to those Jewish Christians who were in the diaspora. So it's very clear that the same body of Christians that were scattered in Acts 1 from Jerusalem are the same body of Christians that James here is writing to. And that becomes important because what we see is these events that we're, we're kind of tethering the letter to, what they do is they constrain the possible date range that we have. With a lot of Paul's letters, we have really specific date ranges because we have good records from the book of Acts of 
exactly where, you know, exactly where Paul went, and we can trace out with other things going on, when he got there, how long he stayed there. But with, uh, with James and with the other Catholic epistles or general epistles, we don't have that kind of dating. So this puts us in a range probably from about AD 50, which is when the Jerusalem Council took place, to no later than AD 62, which is when James the Just or James the Less is sometimes called, uh, when he was uh, martyred by the Jewish authorities in um, Jerusalem. We read about that not in the Bible, but we read about that in Josephus and Philo and other first century sources. So that puts us in this constrained range uh, and the dating of before the Jerusalem Council, uh, it, it tells us a little bit about some of the issues we're going to run into later. You know, it's classically known that there's this sort of apparent tension between James and Paul that we'll get to when we get to chapter two. But when we understand that this letter was probably very early, possibly the earliest letter that we have in the New Testament, uh, we understand that some of those tensions can be chalked up to, to various dynamics that are going on in the early church. And lastly, in way of introduction, we'll talk a little bit about the canonical location. So when you think about the structure of the New Testament, we have the, the Gospels and Acts. They serve kind of as the historical narrative portion of the Bible or of the New Testament. And then we have Paul's letters. They're all clumped together roughly from longest to shortest, not necessarily in terms of duration or, or um, in terms of time frame. It's not chronological. And then Hebrews kind of sits in there in the middle. It sits where it was because the, the early church wasn't sure whether Paul wrote it or not. So they kind of put it there. It, maybe it's Paul and we put it at the end of Paul's letters. Maybe it's not Paul. We put it at the beginning of these other letters. And then we have the general epistles or the Catholic epistles, which goes from Hebrews all the way through to Jude. And then, of course, we have Revelation at the, the very last book of the Bible. And what we see is that the, the letters that come from Paul bear very distinct Pauline marks. They, they're really clearly from the same author. The greetings are uniform. The metaphors that are used are the same. The way, you know, even down to the way that Greek sentences are structured is very similar across Paul's, um, Paul's collection of documents. We don't see the same linguistic, verbal, you know, um, similarity in the Catholic epistles. But what we do see is that all of these letters were likely written by people who grew up in Israel itself. They probably had more of an, you know, of a kind of a backwoods education. They learned from their family rather than going to a formal school. And we see a, a shared collection of metaphors and uh, ways of thinking about the faith and about our obedience to God throughout that. So just a couple quick uh, comparisons. James uses the metaphor of a person who, um, who doubts is like a wave that's driven before the seas or driven and tossed by the winds. Peter says that the false teachers are waterless springs uh, and waves that are driven by a storm. Jude says that those who are uh, false teachers are waves that are sort of whipped up and have this foamy surface and they're kind of worthless. But when we look at Paul's use of the metaphor of waves, it's no longer the person who's the wave, it's whatever's driving the person. So you can see how those metaphors, even though they're both referring to waves, are slightly different. And that's important because what we'll find out is as we go through James, we're going to be able to look at some of the other letters in First Peter and Second Peter and Jude especially and help to get more clarification about what James is saying 
rather than what a lot of people do is they try to compare James to Paul, who's working with a very different circle of analogies and metaphors and even language using words differently, or they compare them uh, to, you know, extra biblical writing at the same time. But we're going to get much closer to what's going on if we look at these Catholic epistles as kind of one school of thought or train of thinking in the early church, and then Paul's epistles as the other. So that brings us to the, to the letter itself. And this first uh, passage that we come to is something that I think most of us have read, and on, on the surface, it's actually very straightforward to understand. James uh, is a very practical letter. Um, it is, uh, there's, I think it was 58 imperative verbs or 58 commands out of 108 verses. So more than one or more than two uh, commands in the book of James for every, every uh, more than one command for every two verses. So more than 50% of the verses contain commands for us. Um, but we have to be careful because we do have a tendency when we read a book like that to start to think in terms of legalistic righteousness and legalistic obedience. And although some people make the argument that James is there, we know that because the scripture is one and it's, it's inspired by the same Holy Spirit, that if Paul is not legalistically saying we can merit righteousness, then James also cannot be saying that. And we do have to do a little bit of work to figure out how, when we get to chapter two, how that works. We're going to have to, we're going to have to do a little bit of heavy lifting on the language. Um, but it's important to remember that as we read this, because we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that just because James gives us a lot of commands, that that means somehow that James does not believe in salvation by grace through faith. That is what he learned from his brother. That's what he preached when Paul came to him. Uh, initially in, after his conversion, and then again later on, that's what they agreed on. And they, they sent him out saying, we agree with your doctrine. Um, but we also have to remember, and this ties into the early dating, we have to remember that this stuff happened over the course of time. Um, we'll get into all that nitty gritty when we get to chapter two. But starting in verse two, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Different translations put this different ways. But I think that a better way to, to render this is that uh, when you meet trials of various kinds, you know that testing or authentication produces steadfastness or endurance. So it's not, we often think of, um, of the test being us being tested but it's really more akin to our faith is being authenticated. And this is a, um, a theme that goes throughout the whole letter. One of the creative ways uh, that the letter is sometimes outlined is by going through the first chapter and then tying that chapter as the outline to other portions of the chapter so, or of the book. So this would link up to chapter two where faith is authenticated by works. But here it's, uh, faith is being authenticated by trials of various kinds. So this, this really could have a range of meanings for us, right? Maybe it's a, a sore back. I, uh, you know, you know, I was on vacation last week and Thursday before we were supposed to leave, I was carrying in some supplies from uh, the grocery store and I took a step up the stairs and the muscle that goes all along the left side of my spine went into spasm. 
So I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? I've got I've to load the car tomorrow. I've got to drive for six to eight hours, depending on how traffic is. Am I going to be able to enjoy my vacation? And I, I don't, I mean, it, it happened so fast, and, and then we got on to figuring out what to do. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about how that produces faith. But that was an opportunity for me to pray. As I laid in bed trying to sleep that night, I was able to pray, and I was able to say, God, build my faith through this. Test my faith through this. It maybe, maybe it's uh, the loss of a job or a cancer diagnosis. Maybe it's a son or a daughter who strays far from the faith or never came to faith. Right? These are all things that God, in his wisdom, brings to us and uses it to authenticate our faith. The authentication here is not, uh, sometimes we think of authentication and you hear the analogy of the refiner's fire, and there's reasons to use that analogy. But here, the authentication is more of a comparison. In uh, ancient times, you know, coins were not mass produced. They were made in various places. And so you hear in the Old Testament, you read about the temple shekel. Well, what the temple shekel was, is it was the standardized coin that when you came to give your offering, they would put the shekel on the temple shekel on one side of the scale and your kind on the other, because it was often easy to kind of shave off the edges of your coin and make it a little bit smaller and keep a little bit more that you wouldn't be able to see with the eye, but you could see on the scale. And so what James is saying here is that these trials, they essentially put your faith on the scale. They authenticate it by putting it on the scale and balancing out, right? And what this does is it produces endurance. It produces steadfastness. In effect, it proves to ourselves that we have faith. It proves to others that we have faith. And in a sort of sense that we have to be careful about, it proves to God that we have faith. It demonstrates our faith outwardly. We'll say a lot more about that when we get to chapter two. But we have to go back to the, the beginning of this little segment here, right? We're to count it all joy. Now, I did not count it all joy when my back went out on Thursday. Um, I can remember times when I was in college and I was totally broke and my car would die I did not count it all joy when my car died. That's to my shame, to my, to my detriment. But what, what sometimes this is made to say is that the event itself is joyful. And I want to say to you, no, it's not, right? It's not a joyful thing when your back goes out. It's not a joyful thing when you find out that you have a medical diagnosis that you don't want or that there's a bill coming that you can't pay. That is not a joyful thing but we are to count it joy because of what it produces for us and in us. We're to count it as joy because it produces steadfastness. And then I want to point out something that I find is very interesting. If you turn over to uh, Matthew 24, chapter 3, and this is just one more of those examples of the, um, those kind of verbal affinities or verbal parallels that I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 24. This is um, Jesus. It's the sermon. Uh, it's the Olivet Discourse. And I'm going to read from uh, verse 3 down to verse 14. It says here, uh, as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things come to be? 
what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Sounds like trials of various kinds, right? And many will fall away. Many will be tested and will not be found to be faithful and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now you might see in James, this is, this is uh, translated as steadfast. I'm translating it as endurance. This word here in Matthew is the verbal form, the action form of the same Greek word. So, so this enduring that Jesus is saying, those who endure to the end will be saved. Those who, uh, because of testing and trials of various kind, faith has been tested and produced endurance will endure to the end. If you turn back to James, he goes on to say, um, he goes on to say that uh, the purpose of this steadfastness is to let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, you may be seeing where this is going, but the word perfect, we've heard it before, it's telos, it's the goal or the end result, the, the thing that uh, uh, is oriented towards, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The telos of man. That's what we're talking about here. But when Jesus says that those who endure to the end, he's using a verbal form or a, a noun form of this adjective. So right here, the, the teaching of Jesus, that there's going to be this time where there are false teachers, where there are false prophets, there's false converts, and they're going to turn you over. They're going to stone you to death. They're going to slander you and they're going to kill you. They're going to give you trials of various kinds. But if you endure to the end, if the testing of your faith has produced endurance unto the end, you will be made perfect. So you see how this all loops together, how this all comes around. And I think personally, the, the best encapsulation of this theology that I've ever read is the first answer to the Heidelberg Catechism. And the question that is posed to kick off this catechism we've all heard is what is thy comfort, thy only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. And here's, here's the key point that all things must be subservient to my salvation. All things must work together for the good of those who love God. And that's what's saying here. 
ultimately the origin of these trials, because we, of what we know to be true about God, is God. He's the one that sends trials into our life. He's the one that causes circumstances that we are to balance our faith against and see if it is, is present. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not, but we're to balance it. And if we endure, if endurance is produced in us, then we will persevere until the end. Because those things are sent to us, not as a punishment, not as a, uh, not as a hurdle for us to jump over, but as something to authenticate our faith. Do you see the, the trials that God gives us are not to test us. They do that. They're, they're not an exam that we have to pass. There's something given to us for our benefit to prove what God has already done in our lives in building faith, to prove that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and gives us faith that endures. So going on to verse five, it says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So James just said that steadfastness, the full effect of steadfastness or endurance is that we are lacking in nothing. So now if you're lacking something, ask for it. And then what will God do? He will give you trials, which will produce that steadfastness in you to produce the thing that you lack. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. In our modern context of uh, postmodernism and deconstruction, if you are on social media, you will frequently see what's called uh, deconstructed evangelicals, or if they're a little more edgy, they might say ex-evangelicals. Uh, a lot of formerly famous contemporary Christian music artists, a lot of uh, very young um, figures in the Young Restless Reform Movement, people like Joshua Harris, uh, people like Toby McKeon, uh, John Piper's son uh, is one of these ex-evangelicals. You'll sometimes hear that doubt is a virtue, that doubting is a good thing. You should question everything. But here James makes it really clear, doubt is not a virtue, right? We have, we have a comparison in the scripture of two different people who uh, doubt. I'm not going not gonna to go there, but in Mark, we see the, the, um, the father who brings his child to Jesus and his child is demon-possessed. And Jesus said, he says to him, Lord, if you will, you, may, you can heal him. And Jesus kind of shoots back and says, if I will. And what does the father say? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He's acknowledging that his, his conditional statement of if you will, that's, a, that's actually doubt in his life. He goes to Jesus, hoping beyond hope that his son can be healed, but he's not 100% there but what does he do? He asks God to help his belief. And Jesus does. Contrast that with Simon Magus in Acts chapter eight, right? He's in this group of, of people. He's a magician. He's, he's doing wonders that the people are amazed at. And then the, the apostles come and they preach the gospel. And it even says in a certain sense, Simon Magus believed, but nobody received the Holy Spirit. And we know from, from Acts that when people receive the Holy Spirit, that's, that's conversion. Those two things happen at the same time. And so then, then the apostles come, they, they preach the gospel again, and everyone gets the Holy Spirit except Simon. And Simon says to Peter, 
hey, I've got money. Give me this power to give, to give the Holy Spirit to people. He's thinking in these categories of his old magician ways. And Simon basically, or and Peter basically says, you have no lot or part in this. And he says, repent and believe that you may be saved. And what does Simon say? He doesn't repent and believe. He says, but, the, the, or the act says, but Simon replied, pray for me, Peter. Maybe this won't happen to me. He doesn't go to Jesus himself. He doesn't, he doesn't seek the Lord. He asks Peter because he doesn't really believe that it's true. Now, this doubting person, sometimes I think we, we look at this doubting person, we get real nervous because sometimes I have doubts. Sometimes I'm not 100% sure. Sometimes I'm, I'm wondering if that thrown out back or that broken car or that loss of job, I'm wondering if that is actually from the Lord or not. How could it be? That's not the person we're talking about, the person who has these doubts, but works through it. What we're talking about is the person who lives in a continual state of disbelief against the God of the Bible, right? And we know this because this analogy of the waves, these, these people who are double-minded, they're like waves that are tossed back and forth by the wind, right? We sat on the beach last week. The waves come in, the waves go out. Waves come in, the waves go out. You know what they don't do except in really extreme circumstances? They don't keep going in and they don't keep going out. They don't make any progress. They just go back and forth and don't accomplish anything, right? Even when there's a hurricane or a, or a tsunami, the waves may go further in, but the waves come all the way back out. That's the picture that we have here is someone who never makes progress in the faith, someone who never makes progress in their unbelief, in their doubts. And we probably should look at this person more in light of someone who is a false teacher than just someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. And we know that we won't, we won't go there, but we know that because when Peter and Jude apply this language, they're talking about the false teachers in the church. So what James is saying to those who are dispersed, to those who Jesus says the, the, the enemy may try to deceive even the elect if it were possible. That's who we're talking about, the people who are dispersed. Those people are told these trials are for your benefits. The false teachers, they're not for your benefits. Those are punishment, right? And we see that this gift of wisdom that God gives generously without reproach, that goes back to what I said earlier. When God sends a trial into your life, it is not a punishment. He is not reproaching you. Even when we suffer this, the consequences of our sins, it's still not a punishment from God. It is a fatherly chastisement for our good. The last little section here, starting in verse nine, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flowers of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James in the book has an interesting take on poverty and we'll talk about it. James is not teaching that all wealthy people are lost. He's not teaching that it is impossible for a wealthy person to be saved. We are all unimaginably wealthy compared to anyone that it, James has in mind in his audience. Even compared to the wealthy people of the day, we are all unimaginably wealthy. 
Instead, what James is talking about as an extension of what he just said is those people who come into the church, try to buy their way to salvation. Like Simon Magus, right? Give me this power and I will give you silver. Give me, give me this salvation and I will put a big fat check in the offering plate. Right? That's who will perish and fade away. But for the lowly brother, they can boast in their exaltation. And why is that? Because they can count it all joy when they face trials of various kinds. That, that man who lived in Jerusalem before Stephen was stoned to death, he didn't just go out into Judea and get another job and buy another house probably begged and borrowed and stole and went into slavery to survive. But all of those things he faced for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he counted all joy. And so he can boast in his exaltation. So that leaves us with uh, a little bit of application. Do we boast in our trials? Do we count it all joy and tell people about how we count it all joy? I, I don't think that when I went into work on Friday that I told a single person how, how thrilled I was that God was producing steadfastness in me through my thrown out back. And tell a single one. I should have. I should have expressed how thankful I was to God that I was able to get immediate medical attention in the walk-in clinic. I should have expressed to them how thankful I was that even that morning, an hour after I woke up, it was already starting to feel better, but I didn't. But you know what? God's going to use my failure to reorient myself for the next time because he has promised that he will use that testing, that authenticating of my faith to produce steadfastness unto salvation and endurance, and perfection, and completion. So think about that as you go out into your week. We're all going to run into things this week that we are not super thrilled about. We're all going to run into things that are not in and of themselves a joyful experience. But every single one of those is subservient to our salvation. Every single one of those is given to us as a testimony of what the Lord is doing in our life. They authenticate our faith to us. They authenticate our faith to those around us. And they produce the characters and qualities that we need that will ultimately bring us to the end. 